0: It's a delight to be turning back to the book of Luke this morning. Turning to Luke chapter 15. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 10. Luke 15, 1 through 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents.
1: Uh, Father, as we enter into the Gospel of Luke again, Lord, I pray that You would show us the glory of Christ who is the image, the perfect image of what you're like, Father. Lord, I pray that you would give us a heart like yours, that you would convict us where ours is wayward, that we might repent and rejoice along with you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the beauty of hopping into the Scripture and coming to church is we get to look at truth. And uh, I'm going to tell you some truth, give you some truth that maybe isn't right from the Scripture, but that you've experienced uh, and are experiencing even now. And that's this truth. Maybe nothing more than politics in our day divides people into two groups. Is that true? Have you seen this? Have you seen divisions within families? Have you seen divisions amongst friends and divisions amongst a country called the United States? It's true. It divides people into two groups, and the two groups are this, the good ones and the bad ones. And no matter which group you're in, you're in the good group. And the other ones are the bad ones. And because this is true, slander, anger, bitterness, strife, Is what we hear and feel at this time. As joy, celebration, and hopefulness languishes. But there is good news. Our joy and celebration and hopefulness ought not languish as Christians. Unfortunately, the church can often join right in with the world, hopping on the side, becoming angry, collecting enemies. And this has devastating effects on the community and on our country. Erwin Lutzer says this, Perhaps the church doesn't suffer for the sins of the world as much as the world suffers for the sins of the church. Let me read that one more time. Perhaps the church doesn't suffer for the sins of the world as much as the world suffers for the sins of the church. Now, let's be honest. The church always has suffered at the hands of the sins of the world. But oh, how the world suffers when the church, the one that's been given the good news, the one that's been sent to tell of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ becomes angry and becomes vengeful. That's when people really suffer this was true for the people of Israel so much suffering was happening in Israel because of the self-righteous pride and selfishness of the leaders of Israel the shepherds of Israel had a terrible sin it was the sin of self-righteousness that destroys relationships and is in rebellion to the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel. We're going to look in chapter 15 at three parables, two shorter parables and one longer one that are all driving at the same point. And the major theme, if you were going to pick a theme of these parables, I think you would have to pick the theme of God's love for outcasts and sinners. And this happens to be a theme that runs through all the gospel of Luke. God's surprising love for the outcasts and the sinners which makes so angry the self-righteous and the legalists, religious folks in his day. I'll give you one example of this. It's been a long time since we've been in Luke 14, but just a few verses back from where we're at now in, in Luke chapter 14, verse 21 is the parable... Of the great banquet. And you remember. That there was a man. Who threw a great banquet. And he invited. All these people to come. But. Some of those people. Had just bought in a field. And so they couldn't come. Another one. Had just purchased an ox. And still. Others were getting married, and so they were busy. They couldn't come to this feast. They couldn't come to this salvation because there was too much going on. So in verse 21 it says, so the servant came and reported these things to his master, and the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and to the lanes of the city and bring the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame and the servant said sir what you commanded has been done and there's still room and the master said to the servant go to the highways the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled for i tell you none of those who were in for i tell you none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet jesus continued to tell parables to the people of Israel that were sure they were going to be celebrating with the people of God to reveal to them that they actually were not, that they didn't know this God and that some were going to get in that they couldn't imagine would get in. The tax collectors, the prostitutes, the ones who the religious... Righteous people had made their enemies. The people that they were to make war against. And so as we come to this parable in chapter 15, we're going to see some words that are repeated. The word lost. Today we're going to look at the lost sheep parable and the lost coin, parable. And then you're going to see the word found, the finding of something that's been lost. And then you're going to see the word rejoicing at the finding of the one who was lost or the sheep that was lost or the coin that was lost. And so we're going to see those words as a theme, but another word is introduced, repentance. Because the lost that is found has an element to it, and that element is repentance. And there's joy in heaven when repentance is present. And so let's jump into this chapter and see what the Lord means for us to find. And it's always key when you're reading the parables, Jesus always tells a parable in light of a present circumstance that he's involved in to to shed insight into it. And it's important when you read a parable not to read a parable as though it's like a shorter catechism of the Christian faith usually there's a distinct circumstance and then a story's told with a main point in light of that circumstance often parables are uh, uh not interpreted correctly when you when you try to make more out of them than was attended by christ and one of the things you're looking for in a parable is where is the climax Where is the crescendo? Usually there is the point. And we're going to see the ultimate crescendo next week as we read uh, the parable of what's called the prodigal son. Or as John MacArthur would say, the tale of two sons. Or as others would say, the parable of the gracious father. It can be named different things, but there we will see the main Point which we will touch on this week and hopefully have eager longing uh, next time uh, we meet together. So here's what we find in verse 1. We see the context. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. This is nothing new in the Gospel of Luke. We're not surprised that the Pharisees are grumbling. This is what they do. They grumble and they're angry and they're bitter. Joy is lacking in the scribes and the Pharisees. And they're grumbling because tax collectors, the lowest of the low, and sinners were drawing near to him. And they were saying he not only receives them, but he eats with them. And for the Pharisees and the the scribes, this is unheard of you're supposed to separate from the sinners. You're not supposed to eat with them. You're not supposed to be around them. And you definitely aren't supposed to receive them into your fellowship. And so they're grumbling. And I'll say this at the outset. Whenever I see the Pharisees, by God's grace and the Holy Spirit convicting my own heart, I don't see those bad guys over there. In fact, the remaining sin in my life, which is more than I would ever want, tends to be like a Pharisee. Tends towards self-righteousness. I just do. I've never drank a beer. I've never drank alcohol. It's easy for me to look at people who do and think, how can they do that bad thing? It's easy for me to get angry as I look at this lost, sinful world and want to declare war against them. And by God's grace, the Pharisees get rebuked over and over and over and over again all through the Gospel of Luke so that I feel like I've preached this sermon a hundred times. But thank God for the Holy Spirit to inspire this Scripture to help someone like me. And so I challenge you, to not just say, yeah, those Pharisees are bad, but to say, Lord, show me how my anger and bitterness actually points to maybe a similar type of self-righteousness that the Pharisees had. And this is nothing new. Back in Luke 5, in verse 27, we read, And after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he arose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. This is going to be a fun night. This is a celebration. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. And Jesus said this not because He thought there was really righteous people. But what he's saying is, I did not come to save those who think they are righteous. I did not come to save those who think they are good. That's not who I came for. Because repentance and faith is the way we enter into Christ. And there can be no repentance where there is no brokenness over your own sin. Not someone else's sin, your sin. No one got saved by being angry over another person's sin. And then we saw it in Luke chapter 7, in verse 37, when Jesus was reclining, at a Pharisee's house. We read, and behold a woman of the city who was a sinner. When she learned that he was reclining at table in a Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster baster, flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them uh, and anointed them with ointment now when the pharisees who had invited him saw this when the pharisee who had invited him saw this he said to himself this man if this man were a prophet he would have known who and what sort of woman this is touching him for she is a sinner so they would watch jesus do miracles and they would say man that looked impressive but he lets a woman like that anoint his feet, so we know he must be from the devil. We know he can't be from God because we know the prostitute's sin, and he seems to be oblivious to it. That's how the Pharisees were reasoning when they watched Christ. And we're going to see it again in Luke 19, with Zacchaeus you're familiar with this story right in verse 5 when Jesus came to the place he looked up and said to him Zacchaeus hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today so he hurried and came down and received him fully or received him joyfully and when they saw it they all grumbled he has gone to be the guest of a man who was a sinner. So as they see Jesus joyfully receive Zacchaeus, oh, their hearts grumble and they're angry and they're miserable and they're no fun. You don't want to be a friend of a Pharisee. Miserable. Always always seeing everyone else's sin, but failing to see their own. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, the half of my goods I give to the poor. If I've defrauded anyone anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. That's why he came. He came to seek and he came to save the lost. There's a game that sadly often becomes more than a game. It can become a way of life that the self-righteous play. It's a sort of comparison game. And we've all partaken in it. It's called, did you see what they're doing? Have you ever played this game? It's a game that's been played for thousands and thousands of years. It goes like this. I am so glad that I am not like them. They are so bad. I am so glad. This is a powerful game because it provides a sense of identity, a sense of community with others when we all agree on our own righteousness and someone else's sin. You see that? You have community. We all do this and they all do that. So I belong. There's a sense of identity and there's a sense of community and the world plays this no matter what side of the issue you're on. Why do you think the homosexual community has these parades and all this unity because they believe they're right And everyone else is wrong and they have a sense of identity being the right ones and the loving ones while all of them are wrong. And it can go the other way. This game has been played all over the world and for centuries as friends gather in coffee shops, in cafes, In living rooms, in offices, Christians often unwittingly play along. And if you could eavesdrop in this game, you would hear many things, but there's one thing you will rarely ever hear. In fact, it would be breaking the rules of this game. It's someone talking about how sinful they themselves are how their own struggle with sin disgusts them. You cannot do that because that kills our joy in the game. If someone in the game starts saying, yeah, but I hate my sin more than I hate their sin, the whole game begins to crumble before their eyes their sense of identity, is lost. It's convicting. So if this rule is broken, someone must quickly say, yeah, but, then quickly describe the details of someone else's sin so that we can be back to feeling good about ourselves. You know this is true. And you know you have played it. I sit in a coffee shop a lot of times two days a week. I listen to what's being spoken. Almost all the conversations you hear are about we're the good ones and they're the bad ones and I'm so glad that I got my good ones that I get to have coffee with and have fellowship with. But this is the way of the world, and it's the way of the flesh, and it's in direct conflict with the Holy Spirit that lives inside all Christians. This Spirit is at war with the flesh. You know that, right? When you became a Christian, the war began. That's when the putting of death of this old worldly way begins that's when the war begins why did the holy spirit come to convict the world of sin you see that he destroys the game because he comes into your life to convict you of sin and of what's deserved for that sin judgment but then what's the third thing he came to do, point to the righteousness, which is Christ. So as we begin to play the game, the Holy Spirit says, tap, tap, tap on your own heart. Have you been as angry and broken over your own sin as you are over their sin? Have you forgotten that Jesus Christ actually Needed to die on the cross because your own sin is that horrible, and that He's paid the price, and that you are saved by a hundred percent grace. That the righteousness that you have, Christian, is called a foreign righteousness, which means it's not your righteousness, it's given to you as a gift. This is what the Holy Spirit does. This is how you get set free from a game that looks like it promises joy, but deep down inside creates a bitter, angry person that is in the process of destroying all the relationships in their life. That's what self-righteousness always does. And before we jump into verse 3 let's just consider for a moment what drew the sinners to Christ they were drawn to him and when they came they received him so what was he like the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the low came to him what was he like well here's what we know he didn't condone sin He didn't tell them, what you're doing is right. That's not what he did. That's not how he got them to come to him. What did he do? He spoke truth in love. He really loved them. He really, really loved them. And so that the truth he spoke to them, they experienced as sincere Love. I can do good on a theology test. I can't always do good on the temperature of my heart towards other people. I often am convicted as I counsel someone in the truth yet feel my own heart cold and not loving the one I'm counseling as I ought, as I know God loves them. Because a characteristic that is missing in our lives when we join in this self-righteousness game, the thing that's missing is love. We just saw in First Peter 4, eight. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. You see, it's the opposite of the game. The game says, be on the lookout for sin. You want to know the crazy part of the game? When does the most joy come? When the most sin is discovered. That's when true joy comes. Did you hear what so-and-so did? It's awful. That's when the game gets fun and yet love covers a multitude of sins. Or how about Proverbs ten twelve? hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. You remember in first Corinthians 13. When Paul is describing what love does. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. It bears all things. There's a hopefulness to it, a, a wanting to believe the best about a person rather than the worst. It's the attitude of love. It doesn't deny sin. Christ never denied sin. He convicted of sin and he drew people to himself, the one who can forgive sin and so then here's the parable he tells in light of this so the point of the parable is going to be to teach self-righteous people and the sinners what God is really like so he told them this parable what man of you having a hundred sheep if he has lost one of them does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. There's that word. There's the lost sheep in verse 4. There's the finding of it at the end of verse 4. And then there's rejoicing in verse 5. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. So I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who needs no repentance. This is a cutting parable for the Pharisees to hear. Because Jesus is finding sinners and they're not rejoicing. They are not rejoicing in a sinner that's spiritually dead being brought to spiritual life. In fact, it angers them. What does he mean when he says there will be more joy in heaven That means with God, over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who needs no repentance. If we read the rest of the Gospel of Luke, we know there is no righteous people. And so he's talking about if there's 99 people keeping the rules better than the tax collectors and the Pharisees, Yet, doing it with the legalistic heart, not with love for God, just one outcast sinner who repents and turns to God is what sets heaven ablaze in party and joy and rejoicing. You see? how this parable would cut. And he knows it's true. He says, which one of you would not rejoice with the one who finds the sheep? You will do it. That's why he created the parable. They know, yep, someone loses a sheep. That sheep's worth something. If my friend finds it, I'll celebrate with him. You bet. In a moment, we're going to see a lost coin. If someone finds a coin, someone loses $100 and tells you about it and they call you the next day and say, I found it, what are you going to say? Praise God, that's awesome. But if you see one of your enemies on the other side, a bad one, be found anger. That's the point. Bitterness. They'll rejoice with the lesser, rather than with the greater. They'll rejoice if monetary means are found. They did not value human life. They were happy to just assign all those people. Yes, they're created in the image of God. Yes, they're going to hell. And good, they're going to hell. That was their attitude. They're not supposed to be a part of us. Let's not bring in the inclusion of the Gentiles. Let it just be us. And so, obviously, all need to repent. All need to be called to repentance. Remember when he told the parable or, or the story in Luke 13:2, when he answered them? Uh, do you think the Go- Galileans were worse sinners than uh, all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Because they because Herod slaughtered them on the altar? He says, do you think they were worse sinners because you weren't slaughtered and they were? He says, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. Or on the 18 whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed, do you think that they are worse offenders than all others who deliver? Do- lived in Jerusalem, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. This is a loving exposure of the scribes and Pharisees in order that they might see their self-righteousness and repent and see that they know not God And I would make this point. If heaven rejoices when a sinner repents, which by the way, heaven is always rejoicing. Right now, my grandma who is with the Lord is experiencing joy because moment by moment, someone's getting saved. Some sinner's repenting. And I think it's pointing to coming to salvation, but I also believe heaven rejoices every time a Christian continues in repentance, continues to do the very thing that brings joy to God's heart. God never sat up there and said, I'm so glad they feel so good about themselves with all that remaining sin in their own life. That has never been the heart of God in fact it shakes a fist in the face of Christ it's offensive to God and so he rejoices when a sinner repents but it's important to remember this in Ezekiel eighteen twenty three, God says have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked declares God and not rather that he should turn from his evil ways and live not only does God have overwhelming joy when a sinner repents he takes zero pleasure in the sin of the wicked see why this game is so evil when a sinner is condemned to hell justice happens and God takes no joy in the death of the wicked In how fallen are our hearts when we create enemies out of people whom we are in the same category as them, sinners, saved by grace. And then we see in verse 8, the second parable, or what woman... He, he's speaking to the men and the women here. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp? That's what you had to do when you didn't have windows. And sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is incredible. He doesn't say over the sinners who repents. He's just saying over one sinner, heaven unleashes with joy. What are you talking about? There's 6 billion people on this earth. You're really going to throw up? Yes, when one sinner repents, the heart of God overflows. And as Christians, we are saved into His family. We are brothers with Christ. We are children of God that are to reflect God's heart to the world, to show the world God's joy, His mercy and His grace in sending His own Son, Jesus Christ, His patience, Think of Christ's patience with you and with I, and yet we lose patience with the lost world that has not Christ, that doesn't have the Holy Spirit. We lose patience, and we're ready to declare war. And when we're like that, we forget who we are, and we forget what the gospel is and the purpose of our life. There's nothing wrong with desiring a country that values what God values. But when they don't, our response ought not be attack them, become angry, declare war, but preach the gospel to them in love. And that's what's a shocker. When a Republican comes to a Democrat and the Democrats Treating the Republican like garbage and the Republican loves back, there's opportunity. When there's true love seen rather than mere war, that's where we see the power of the gospel. And this is my fear, to be honest with you. I'm not fearful that our congregation is going to do what the tax collectors and sinners do more than I am afraid of our congregation becoming self-righteous as the world tends more and more towards evil. It's not that we all struggle with licentious sins, with the lust of the flesh. I'm not saying that. But as the shepherd of Sovereign Grace Church, I know you're conservatives, most of you. That you believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. And so I'm thankful that chapter 15 is in the Bible for people like us. That we not become angry and grumbling and bitter i want to finish with considering repentance because if god rejoices when a sinner repents we must ask the question well what is repentance what does repentance look like well first of all you must know that repentance is a gift of god so we ought to pray for it. We ought to ask God to give us repentance. In verse 26 of 2 Timothy 2, it says, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. Um, I'm sorry, in verse 25 it says, correcting your opponents with gentleness that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to life. So we ought to pray to God for repentance. If you don't see brokenness over your own sin, pray for it. Matt Erbaugh, writing for Desiring God in a blog, uh, uh, was trying to strike at the true heart of repentance. And here's what he said. We must also be aware that one of the biggest hindrances to obtaining a broken heart is our neglect of the relational aspect of sinning. By this I mean that we can view sin as a failure of performance rather than a failure of intimacy. The only grief we experience is disappointed in our inability to do what is right and not that we have despised the living God. And and what he says in there is he says, it's true that repentance is turning. That's what the word means. We're, We're trying to find life in sin and then we hear the gospel and we say, nope. There's no life here. I'm going to turn to God. But it's not merely just a turning, but it's a heartbrokenness that your sin and my sin harms your intimacy with Christ. That's what ought to break our hearts over our sin. This is why we ought to pray, Lord, help me repent. Let me have brokenness in my heart. And this is what repentance is described like. In 2 Samuel 12, 9, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. You see, David's sin when he was convicted by Nathan, Nathan said, you despise the Lord. That's what your sin is. That's why in Psalm 51, when David repents, what does he say? He says, for I know my transgression. My sin is ever before me against you and you only. I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. If you're ever going to have true brokenness over your sin, you have to realize that your sin and my sin is against God personally. In Joel chapter 2, if you want to know what repentance looks like, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments. I ask you an honest question. Has your heart become hardened to the point where you can't remember the last time you've been truly broken over your own sin. Because that's what God calls for, a rending of your heart. And I can tell you, when your heart is rend in two and your heart is broken, because it's a broken and contrite spirit that the Lord will lift up. But when our hearts are broken, you want to know what's the most miserable thing in the world? Playing a game, trying to find something in someone else's life. You can't do it when you're broken. You can't play that game anymore. And that's the power of the gospel because what does the gospel teach? The gospel teaches that you and I are dead in our trespasses and sins. You are and i am there is only one group sinners and god in his love and in his joy sends christ sends christ to seek and save the lost you see jesus is the only one who never sinned and he lived the perfect life in your place so that if you would realize and confess that I'm broken. I have no righteousness of my own. I see my self-righteousness. I see my licentiousness. My only hope is in Christ, and so I turn to Him, realizing that my rebellion has been against Him personally. When you trust in Him, you are saved like that. The rejoicing begins now before any good works flow out of that salvation, heaven is rejoicing. That is good news for sinners. That is good news for me because that's what I am. If Jesus was coming for the good ones, well, I'm gone. But he came for people like me and by the grace of God, his spirit convicted me of sin and showed me Christ's righteousness, showed me the righteous judgment that stood against me, and drew me to this incredible love. Father, I thank you for the gospel. Lord, I pray that the number one conversation that comes out of this church and this group of people has to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would give us the right heart towards those who are sinners and who are in rebellion to you. That we might remember what you've called us to do and that is preach the gospel to them. Lord, give us the courage to do that. Give us the love to do that. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.